All right. So I finished your book last night. I loved it. I mean, this is this is great. This is uh and you and and you think listeners should buy the book? Is that what you're saying? That's the subtext. <laughs> Wait. Wait a second. Wait a minute. No. No, no, I, I don't. I, I, after careful consideration of the entire episode, I think they should make a decision on mm. their own, using doing their own research, Jimmy. Right. Is that, I mean, I think I'd rather live in a world where we rely on experts. You know, I'm listening to Fauci <laughs> about vaccines. I want to listen to right. Mike Babiglia about books. Now, should they buy this book yeah. or not? I think they need to listen to the full episode. I'm I mean, sorry. this is. I mean, have you considered a career in politics? Because you really are swerving the question here. <laughs> yeah. So I, I wrote a book in lockdown because it was that or a podcast, and I figured a book would be more dignified. Some offense, Mike. <laughs> Some offense. <laughs> but you know, I, I, it's lovely to be on your on your podcast on your very nearly radio show. Hey, everybody, we are back with a new episode of Working It Out. A couple quick things. I will be in Berkeley, California in January for three weeks. That's 23 shows. It's going to be very, it's going to be so fun. It's the. It's my new show, The Old Man in the Pool. If you're anywhere in the Northern California area, that's a great one to see. It's a gorgeous theater, the Berkeley Repertory Theater. I'm also going to be at the Moore Theater in Seattle in February. More dates being announced soon. Uh, There's going to be a London one soon announced. Maybe a Paris one. Join the mailing list. There's some exciting stuff coming. Today we have Jimmy Carr, uh, one of my favorite comics, one of my favorite people to talk to. I mean, so smart, so original and unique. Uh, He wrote a book called uh, Before and Laughter, a life-changing book which I thought was an absolute page-turner. I feel like I've quoted it a lot in my life since it came out. It's not just about jokes and laughter in relation to comedians and audiences, but in relation to the healing power of of laughter in our lives and the, the way that we look at our lives through the lens of laughter. I think it's super, super smart. Um, quick warning, uh, Jimmy, if you don't know this, is very well known for, if you've seen him on the roasts or you've seen one of his specials, uh, like on Netflix, Funny Business, uh, he's very, uh, he's very raw, he's very dark. He, 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 he writes jokes that are <laughs> very extreme. I really enjoy them. If that's not what you are, are interested in today, maybe this isn't the episode for you. But I feel like uh, it, it was such a great conversation. And I can't wait for you to listen to my conversation with the great Jimmy Carr. The book was, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, the book lands somewhere between a humor book, a memoir, a self-help book, and a text, a philosophy text. Um, I feel like it sort of straddles all these things. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm pitching it as it's it's uh, it's Eckhart. Tole for people that like dick jokes. <laughs> yeah. You know, because it's I think there's a there's a huge subset of people that that I know and, and my audience that maybe wouldn't read a self-help book. They wouldn't feel like they're they wouldn't be drawn sure. to that area of the bookstore. But actually that stuff is very interesting, but it's it's often presented in a very po-faced, very serious way. So I like the idea of bringing humor to that. I like the idea, and really my philosophy on life is the idea that you go, well, actually, 
everything in life, life is, is better with a sense of humor. Like, I mean, your show, yeah. Thank God for Jokes, makes that point brilliantly, I think. Uh, the oh, the idea that you go, any, any bit of life, any toughness, anything you have to get through, and there's tough bits for all of us, it's, it's better through the lens of comedy. Yeah, I think that that's one of the things that I found most compelling about the book is that it's so distinctly about humor and comedy, and yet you could apply it to absolutely anything, any field, any interest. And and that's I think that's where in, where the universality of the book lies. Because I feel like a lot of times you get in the weeds with you know, books about comedy, books about humor, laughter, and it's dry. Yeah. And it's not funny. And meanwhile, yours is yours is very substantive, but it's got a ton of jokes. Well, I think the I think the distinction they make the publishers is you know if you write a book about jokes, it's very niche. I wrote a book about jokes about fifteen years ago, which is it's very niche. Like comics like it, but it doesn't really apply to anyone else. But humor is fairly universal. And the idea, yes. that the sort of the central premise of the book, the idea that um, disposition is as important as position, is is really yes. kind of that's about the now the extreme version is becoming a comedian. But I think everyone does better with humor. Teachers do better with humor. Doctors do better with humor. Everyone does better yeah. with, with this lightness of touch. And there's an idea that it, it's part of our shared culture as well. The idea that we, um, laughter predates language by about a million years. It's an incredibly mm -hmm. important part of our development as human beings that we are able to laugh. Yeah. It's interesting because over the years, you and I became friends uh, I would say, like, at Montreal Festival. Okay, so it's, in, it's interesting the, the different interpretations of what friendship could mean. <laughs> I, I mean, I know you. <laughs> I yeah, think was, we're friends. Uh, no, it was, it, was, it was definitely Montreal. It was like those, those lovely... Montreal is... I mean, for Pete, I'm sure you've spoken about it a lot on the podcast, but it's, it is summer camp for comedians. It's that lovely yes. uh, camaraderie of comedians. Alan Havey had the best line on it. You know, Alan... Just a wonderful comic. Yeah. And he said, look, we're out for ourselves, but in it together. There's something oh, about nice. comics when they come together. It's like no one's really, we're trying to come up with our own bits and our own style and our own new stuff. And yeah. whatever you're doing, great. Whatever I'm doing, great. It's like, it's not like actors that are slightly more, well, if you get that role, then I can't get that role. There's more of a natural competition there. Yeah. I think that one of the things that fascinates me about you is that you're known as a comedian who hosts these hit shows on TV and does one-liners and does roasts. That's probably what you're known most for. And yet, you've given me notes on maybe three or four of my shows, and a lot of the notes you give are about emotional beats and dramatic beats in the show. Like, I remember with the new one, you and I talked extensively about the most dramatic line in the show, which is, I get why dads leave, which is a very dark moment. And... We talked, I would say, for a couple hours at lunch one day in Montreal about that specific line. And I don't think people would know that about you. Uh, I mean, I remember. I'm, I'm never going to get that time back. <laughs> no, it, it, it is interesting, actually. It's, it's so interesting as a, as, as a creative to have that kind of... It's very easy, I think, with looking at other people's shows and seeing the possibilities and the, you know, the, the, uh, what it needs. Oh, that needs to go. Yeah. That needs to say to see that to see that in your own work is is so difficult. It's so difficult sometimes to to step back. I, I think in life as well. I've got this bit in the book about it's so easy to see other people's bullshit. It's so easy yes. to call other people's bullshit, and it's so hard to see it in yourself. 
Sure. It's like, it's it just, weirdly, we all have that little blind spot of like not being able to, or you're too in love with a bit of material to go, well, just try it a different way. But, but it kind of works this way. Yeah, but try it a different way. It might be bigger. By the way, when you come to my shows at Montreal, people laugh at the sound of you laughing at the show. <laughs> yeah, I've got this. Well, the worst thing about my laugh is when I go and see a friend's show, A, they know I'm there. They know from the yeah. first laugh I'm there. And then every other joke, I get the sense they're looking at me like, oh, nothing on that one? <laughs> nothing on And then, you know, when I laugh, it's like people, uh, it's quite infectious to have a strange laugh. Sure, sure. <laughs> yeah, it's slightly wired wrong. I think the reason I do comedy is my, my mother had an extraordinary weird laugh. Like, my laugh's quite weird. My laugh is on an in, <laughs> on out. So instead of going, ha-ha, it's on a ha-ha, ha-ha, ha-ha. It's a weird, inny laugh. So it sounds like a, a learning disabled goose having a panic attack, which is fine. <laughs> now, my mother had a laugh that made no noise whatsoever. She had a thing called narcolepsy, which is a sleep disorder that I believe you also have a, an interest in. Yes. Yeah. Yes. So uh, I sleepwalking. Yeah. Yeah. Pe uh, people will know Mike is. Uh, uh, I, I think the, is the medical term weirdo. Weirdo. Um, <laughs> sleeps in a sleeping bag properly. That's what it is. Yeah. Head case. But my mother had this narcolepsy where she would make <laughs> zero noise when she laughed. She would. Um, she would, like, her head would bobble. You'd be able to tell that she could laugh. Mm -hmm. And she had cataplexy, so she would fully lose muscular control and collapse if she laughed enough. Oh my gosh which was oh my fabulous as a child because she would walk in with a tray of tea and biscuits. And if you could say yeah. shit funny enough, she would just fully kind of like, or when she was driving, she drove. If you made her laugh in the car, it was like you had to grab the wheel. It was extraordinary. Oh my gosh. Wow. The, <laughs> there are jokes in this book that are so dark. And uh, I feel like wouldn't fly in America but I think fly in the UK. I mean, uh, I've played a fair amount in America and I've done some <laughs> fairly dark stuff. I mean, are you saying that dark jokes don't work in America? Quick, let's get Anthony Jesselnik on the phone and let him know. Yeah, yeah. Well, the one, okay, you have a joke where you say, uh, they say there's safety in numbers, tell that to six million Jews. And I just thought that is one of the most concise and darkest jokes that I've ever seen on the page. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm never, I'm never sure whether these things work on the page, but certainly in a, a you know, at the end of a, a, a live show, I think joking about uh, Joan Rivers had the best line about um, about joking about the Holocaust. She said, yeah. uh, "They say never forget." Well, this is how I remember. Yeah, you know, I, I love I that like thing that. of like keeping bringing it up and, and sometimes you, you, you know, do something with a, a taboo topic and you go, is this, is this worthwhile? Are we, is it a joke about, um, you know, the, 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 that's anti-Jewish? And you go, well, no, it's incredibly uh, pro-Jewish. It's, uh, you know, talking about it. And you have a, another super dark joke in the book that made me laugh out loud and speaks to my <laughs> upbringing, which is uh, wanting to be a priest when you were a kid and then realizing that you weren't that interested in children. <laughs> Yeah, I think I think the I think the wording was like you know when I was a kid I wanted to be a priest, but fundamentally, I don't find children that attractive. <laughs> My gosh, it's and I want to be clear to the listeners because I feel like my listeners tend to be on the the more prudish side because I'm not that dark of a, a comedian. Is that I'm going to make a case for dark jokes? 
I, I mean, not being someone who. T- Listen, I can make the case if you want. If you're busy, I'll do it. I well, I was just gonna say, so that's a dark joke, you know, but it's based on this massive sexual abuse scandal that's extremely well documented. And uh, every now and then, I tell this joke from many albums ago, which is I was an altar boy as a kid, and the answer is no, I wasn't. And I think it's because they knew I was a talker. I have that look about me. And sometimes I get these emails from people, and they say, um, that's uh, victim-blaming because it implies that people who were abused weren't talking well, or I mean, telling they, people. I mean, I think- they've really overthought the, the joke. Uh, I, it's just a joke. It's just... I had a guy come up to me after a show. Uh, I did that joke. He said, uh, he said, I was abused by a priest. Uh, yeah. I said, no, no, you weren't. I was just dressed as a priest. Oh, my gosh. It's <laughs> crazy. But, I mean, it's, it's that thing of the... <laughs> that the, is crazy. The, th- those things happened. And here's my argument for dark humor. Here's my... Sure. Uh, to, to your listeners that may be slightly more prudish and wouldn't really be drawn to my sense of humor, my, the darkness. Sure. I think comedy is nice when things are going great. I, I like it when people come to shows. There'll be 2,000 people in my show tonight, and I, most of them just having fun. This is bonus comedy. Mm-hmm. This is just an extra laugh. We're releasing endorphins. We're feeling happy. Some people will need it. I'm always aware there'll be someone in my audience that needs to laugh tonight. Something yeah. dreadful is happening in their life. They or someone they love very much is going through something terrible. It could be death, could be disease, be just a tough time, a bankruptcy, strains, stresses. Life is like that. Sometimes laughter is the release. You get to forget about it for a couple of hours. And sometimes mm-hmm. you can't forget about it. Sometimes you're going through something so hard that you're either laughing or crying. And if you can face those things with a sense of humor, if you go to a hospice, if you go and spend time with the dying, uh, and I think you've done that gig with me, the Hope and Cope gig in, in Montreal, right? The, uh, what they, yeah. they, they put on a gig every year in a hospice, um, which is beautiful. But it's like, you know, you're playing to people that are in palliative care and they're, they're dying of cancer. And the, to talk about that, the, 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 uh, to talk about and make jokes about cancer, this terrible thing that's, I think, probably affected, I mean, 99% of people have been affected or touched by it. It's very empowering because you take this dark, ominous presence and you take its power away and you laugh at it. And you laugh in its face. Yeah. And it becomes, an. I think a sense of humor is an incredible, uh, it's life. And yes. it's only really useful in those moments. In the, in the darkness, yeah. it's, in regular life, it's fine. And listen, we're both making a living, robbing a living as comedians. But <laughs> so, sometimes people need it. And that's, that's yeah. where that darkness, like we're funny on stage and people come and see the shows, but really the greatest jokes are always going to be in-jokes. They're going to be personal jokes between you and your family and you and your friends. And the most significant jokes are going to be the ones at the toughest times, those incredibly tough times. And, and you can laugh in those moments and it becomes an incredible therapy. And that's, I think, why we have the sense of humor. That's why I think it's a better way to, to view life. I completely agree. And I also think people say, you know, it's in poor taste or this or that. And, and to that, I say... No one else is talking about it. Like, no, like, we're, the comedians are getting up and they're bringing up the sexual abuse in the Catholic Church. Yeah. Um, who else, who else brought that up to you in your life today? Because it's reminding us 
of the problems that we're confronting as a society, but it's doing it in a way that we can laugh about and then hopefully address. Well, I think there's an argument to say that laughter only really happens once there's some element of healing. Yeah. You often have topics which are very difficult to joke about because there's been no justice. So we had a disaster in the UK about maybe 30 years ago called Hillsborough, where there was a terrible um, tragedy happened at a football stadium. A lot of people died and it was not their fault. And they were blamed by the police and they were blamed by the papers. And it has never been something that people are comfortable joking about. It's never been something that's okay because there's no closure on that. And I think if you look at something like, um, you know, if you look at something like Black Lives Matter, if you look at something like the, the uh, Black Lives Matter as a, as a cultural phenomenon, you can talk about on stage, that's okay. But to talk about the deaths of those individuals, there's no justice. No justice has been seen. So how can you, you can't process it. Laughter is a way of sort of saying that you've processed this. You've kind of got through, if you can laugh about it, you're, it the healing is beginning. It's, it's, it's a really interesting, I think it's a really interesting barometer of healing is beginning and we can, st- we can start to, no one was making Titanic jokes the next day. Right. Do you, the Hillsborough incident, are you able to make jokes about that? No. 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 I mean, I listen, oh, no kidding. I, it's also, there, there's, a, there's a risk reward on these things. Like, I don't have anything to say. There's, there's nothing has occurred to me. Um, and it's, you know, I, I don't say things that are dark for the sake of it. It's never about offending people. It's always about making people laugh. And, yeah. I, you know, you, if, hey, listen, if I offend people, that's just a bonus. <laughs> but that thing of going, you just, my job is to make people laugh. And actually some of these dark things are very, there's a lot of tension. So the release is huge when you talk yeah. about that. And it's like, okay, this is, this is fine. Is there anything you've evolved on in terms of comedy being regressive or or anything where you've changed your mind in the last few years? Yeah, I mean, I changed, I mean, what, from a personal point of view, it's one of my favorite questions. It's, it's something that I, I have in the book, um, you know, great questions. My favorite question, what was the last thing you changed your mind about? Yeah. I think I changed my mind, you know, all the time on things. It's like, you know, the world is evolving and growing. I think jokes are always going to be jokes. They're never taken seriously. It's not really a standpoint. Certainly the kind of comedy that yeah. I do, it's rare that I'm like, I'm not telling people how to vote. I'm not a particularly political comedian. Uh, it's politics with a, with a small p. You know, it would be... So th- there's le- in terms of material, there's, there's not stuff that I look back on and go, wow, that was, you know, super edgy. I wouldn't do that now. It's weird because all of the stuff I've ever said exists in one moment. It, it's all on YouTube. Yeah. It's all on Netflix right now. So the joke yeah. that ends my career is already out there. I've already told yeah. it. And there's nothing <laughs> right. I can do about it. I might as well just relax. Is there any topic that you used to think, no, you can make jokes about that, and now you go, well, maybe we shouldn't make jokes about that? Um, I don't think so. I don't think there's anything that I've, I've, I've really... No, because I think all of those things are like worthy of... I mean, I think the sensitivity has increased. Yeah. I think if you're going to talk about um, you know, uh, trans issues, the, the level of... Um, respect you need to bring to it. You can tell a very edgy joke about it and it can still be um, respectful and inclusive. I mean, I'm I'm not a big fan of saying, uh, I find it a little bit patronizing when people go, well, that group cannot take a joke. Mm -hmm. So if you're going to talk about things that are incredibly sensitive, there's a way of doing that that feels inclusive. It feels like, here's, here's the quick and easy rule for me. Never tell a joke if you've got to look around before telling it. 
Mm, yes. Like, you know that yes, thing. Yes, that's that, so smart. I love that. That thing that you would, you would see in a social setting of like, okay, it's just us here. Here's one for you. That's like, that, yeah. those are the bad jokes. That's no good. Those yeah, are the bad yeah. jokes. If it's like, I've got a blindfold on, I don't know who I'm talking to, I'm telling you the joke. Great. And everyone yes. that's in. You know, so if you're going to joke about um, disability, my rule has always been, if there's a tetraplegic couple in the front row, um, I have a nice tetraplegic couple that come and see me in Ipswich. Anyway, they're, they're, they're in the front row in basically hospital beds. And if you were going to tell a joke about disability, you go, I'm going to drop it this evening because those guys are in. You can never tell that joke again. Never. Yeah. So you, ha- you either tell it or you don't. You either go, look, this is acceptable. This is, this is great. I'm not telling it because they're not here. I'm jealous of you because you were friends with Stephen Hawking and you talk about it in the book. <laughs> Yeah, he was. A, I mean, I don't know anything about physics as well. I maybe maybe that friendship was wasted on me. I, we both like musical theater <laughs> and we like parties and drinking and spicy food. So it was a friendship yeah. based on that. We were at the same college years and years ago, and then I met him at a function, and said, "Oh, listen, I, I knew you when I was at college. You nearly ran me over a couple of times in your mobility scooter." <laughs> and obviously, he's you know it takes him ages to type on the thing, and I'm quite good with. I'll just talk at him. And then got a nice email sure. back the next day, and yeah, it was fun. It's a, it's a, it's a nice friendship. It's a, I love that. I love that. I love that chapter because you talk about how you sent him a letter, sort of in your younger years, that was mocking, but then his response back was so smart. Well, I mean, I'll tell you the story. So I sent, I sent like a letter saying, I, you know, I've got a uh, disabled son and. What about a play date was the gist of the letter. And it used the worst yeah. possible language to talk about disability. But it was kind of a nice, uh, well, uh, not a well-meaning, but it was like a, like a comedic letter. It's quite an old, you know, uh, device. And then he wrote back this beautiful letter. And I kept it in the show because sometimes when you're, you know, doing kind of wind-up stuff or, or punking someone, sometimes they win. And you have to include that too. Because it's okay. It's, yeah. like, it's like when someone heckles. Sometimes they win. Sometimes it's just really funny. Yes. Right. You've got to keep that in the show as well. You can't just have you winning the whole time. I know you've got the edit. but So I love the idea that we kept it in. And then he was so gracious. and like, I spoke to him about it years later. And yeah, I don't care. Fine. Um, and laughed about it. And then started coming to shows. Like He would come to the show in, in Cambridge. And then I had jokes on that tour about Stephen Hawking. <laughs> and you could see like the whole audience like as I told the joke go what the actual fuck <laughs> and it was what was that I, I, I seem to remember the joke was something about the you know Stephen Hawking uh, half man half computer I bet when he dies it's a virus he's, oh my god he's got uh, he's got medical insurance and Norton <laughs> or McAfee depending on where you're doing the joke oh my gosh he was a really he's a really fun Bloke, really oh my good gosh, guy. that's so funny. Yeah. And he liked those jokes. Yeah, you know, but I mean, of course you like that. It's written about you. Why wouldn't you? It's about you, yeah. Listen, it's also that thing of like, he went through that incredible, you know, got to talk to him about this, that journey of like, when something like that happens to you, that he was a, an able-bodied student and this thing happened to him and he went through three or four years, maybe a little bit longer, of uh, depression, of a, a horrendous depression. And then it's, he comes out the other side. And it's that thing if you go, it's, I don't believe in an afterlife. There's a, there's a next life. I think that's the, the for me, that's the, uh, the more interesting thing of like, okay, so in 10 years time, 
will be different. Something will have changed. You know, and, and that's is that and your that, dog? Someone's dog. Your dog? Someone's okay. dog. Yeah, mine. Right. Why not? Why not mine? Sure. <laughs> okay. I don't know if you can really own another creature, but yeah, sure. Working it out is brought to you in part by Lumalnati's, which I love. I love Lumalnati's. Often when I'm in Chicago, I will order it at the airport to arrive at my hotel when I get to the hotel. Um, it's uh, it's an embarrassing truism. That's how much I love pizza that I love. Lou Malnati's is the first family of Chicago pizza. They bring you tastes of Chicago, shipping Chicago's best deep dish nationwide with everyday free shipping. I tried this. It worked out great. It was a big hit around the family. For nearly three decades, Tastes of Chicago has been bringing the best of Chicago to your door and the doors of your loved ones. 100% satisfaction guaranteed. Not only do they ship deep dish pizza, but you can add other iconic Chicago brands like Garrett's Popcorn, Eli's Cheesecake, and Portillo's Italian Beef. Tastes of Chicago is brought to you by Lou Malnati's. They will donate 10% of their total purchases to charity when using code Burbigs. That's tasteofchicago.com. Working It Out is brought to you in part by Bomba's Socks. Bomba's mission is simple. Make the most comfortable clothes ever. Match uh, every item sold with an equal item donated. So this holiday, when you gift Bomba's to someone on your list, you're also giving them to someone in need. It's a, a give, give. This is a company that uh, I actually just came across hearing ads on podcasts I like and, and radio shows that I like, and I thought, that is so logical. This is, they, they make great socks, and then they give a pair to someone in need. Uh, go to bombas.com slash burbigs and get 20% off any purchase during their big Bombas holiday sale. That's B-O-M-B-A-S dot com slash burbigs. For 20% off, bombas.com slash burbigs. So this is this thing that we do uh, called the slow round, which is mostly just memories. So, like, do you have a smell from childhood, particularly good or bad, that you still remember the smell? Uh, yeah. I, uh, I remember. I, I've got, like, vivid memories from childhood. I grew up in a place called Slough, which is where the office, the original office, was set. I remember like showing Ricky and Steve who wrote it around Slough so they could pick out locations. So the club I used wow. to go to when I was a kid was called Henry's, Henry VIII's oh Bar, Anne Boleyn's Bar, which is in the sitcom, which is like I was telling them about it and they were going, that's ridiculous. I went, yeah, it's a real thing. So that was like, Slough was where I grew up on this, and there was a Mars, you know, Mars the chocolate manufacturer. There's a big, yeah. I grew up on the big industrial estate. Not a bougie area, pretty, a very working class area. So, yeah. But, but the world smelled of chocolate. When I was a kid, oh my god, everything smelled like wow. chocolate. When I was a kid, which was, um, oh my gosh. <laughs> and then my my first memory is uh, is of a uh, is I was in Limerick in Ireland and I got sick uh, with my parents and uh, I I got uh, I got meningitis and so my my first memory is a is a spinal tap and oh my I, gosh, I was, I Jesus, was, I was like three and I remember it like really like pretty distinctly like the whole. 
the thing, the doctor's voice, the, the everything. Oh, and that was gosh. A, it's a really interesting thing when I've only become a parent recently and you kind of, you, you kind of, you then re-remember these things and kind of see it from your parents' point of view and go, oh, I mean, they must have been beyond worried. Oh my gosh, yeah. Yeah, it's funny because you, you know, you just became a dad recently. I be, I'm, my daughter's six now and, and it's, oh, it's you, amazing you how they- Oh, you kept her. I think you were in two minds about oh it gosh, when- No, because she was keeping you up at night, wasn't she? You were thinking about adoption at one stage. Have you spoken about that? Because a lot of people are embarrassed about wanting to have their own child adopted. Oh my gosh. All right. So, um, okay. What, how did I, how did I enter this sentence before I got derailed? <laughs> I, I'm messing around with you, man. I haven't seen enough of you. Uh, um, the, the, yeah. So I became a father for the first time, uh, just oh. two years ago. So it's yeah. A- so you, you became a father. And the, re- the, the, the reason I was saying is, is that a lot of people say they first understand their They see their parents as human beings for the first time when they're about 20. For me, it was in having a child and going, oh, right. And it's sort of similar to what you're saying now about the spinal tap. I have not had that experience exactly. Uh, I mean, I I understand they must have been worried, but I look back on my childhood now and go, oh, my God, I'm lucky that I have any semblance of health. I I used to... I've drunk, I'm drinking coffee now, but I've been drinking coffee since the age of three. I was given, I used to like my mother had quite milky coffee. She would give me coffee when oh, I was my three gosh. years of age. I've been drinking coffee no way, every no day way. since I was three. And here's, what? no, no, it gets worse. The parenting gets worse. They would give me a coffee before putting me down for my afternoon nap. No. So you go, no. oh, you people are fucking crazy. <laughs> you're obviously, you know, you're feeding your kid. You want your kid to be kind of healthy. You're feeding them healthy food. So I'm feeding the kid broccoli and stuff. And I, I was saying to my partner, I don't really like, like broccoli that much. I don't know oh, cauliflower. I don't really like it. Did you have it as a kid? No. Didn't have vegetables as a kid. Yeah. Didn't have vegetables. Like, at all. <laughs> Not on me. Don't worry about it. You talk in the book about how your mother passed when you were 25 and you were estranged from your father at 25. Yeah. I, I, uh, yeah. So it was just before... Just before 9-11, my, my mother died. Um, yeah. Which was, uh, I think, yeah, it was a, it's, it's a strange experience. It's like, it's all tied up with that, with, the, uh, with that sort of time where it really felt like the world changed then, the axis changed, everything, everything changed. Yeah. Was it a big decision in the book to talk about your relationship with, with your parents? Because it, it, I feel like it's something that- Well, the, that book, for the many, book actually yeah. came out of- um, uh, there's a friend of mine wrote this book called uh, uh, This Is Gonna Hurt. And it's a book about him being a doctor and his journey as a doctor. It's a really great piece. And he wrote a book for the National Health Service during the first lockdown. So he said to a bunch of us, like 20 of us, 30 of us, he said, would you write an essay about your experiences with the NHS, with the National Health Service? So I wrote a piece, like a thousand words, 2,000 words on... My mother died in a hospital called Guys and St. Thomas's in uh, just opposite Parliament, just opposite Big Ben. It's an amazing hospital. And my mother died there. And I wrote about that experience of like working with the nurses and be- being there and being there at the end, being with someone when they die, how important that is and how uncomfortable that is. But you should be there because you're going to want someone to hold your hand when you die. And mm-hmm. I wrote the piece and the book came out of that. 
I wrote it and then they published it and then I got a call saying, I really like that, do you want to write a book? And in the lockdown, oh. I couldn't go, my go-to excuse was always, I, you know, I'm kind of busy with shows, I don't want to write a book, so thank sure. you, but no thank you. And then I, I, was, I had nothing else on and I thought, well, it'd be really interesting to try and be funny on the page as opposed to trying to be funny on stage. Because it's a slightly different, like there's a, it's a different tone, isn't there? Yeah, the book is a completely different tone from your shows because it's um, you go into very, very serious topics like your mom passing. It skillfully interweaves that with jokes and and then joke and jokes that are you know very dark and. But and, I, uh, I think that's my experience of the world is when dark things have happened, when people have died, there were lighter moments. There were always yeah. lighter moments. There were always little moments within that where you, even the worst day of your life, you laughed a little too. Was there a group growing up in school uh, that wouldn't let you in, that it sort of like sticks in your craw? Uh, no, I don't think so. I was very, I think there's a, there's a lovely quote about, you know, comics of being kind of uh, the one person in the room facing the wrong way. <laughs> and funny. I think most comedians that I know had the ability to get on with the tribes, the teenage tribes. They were in lots of different ones. I was certainly yeah. in, I had my group of friends and then I had like, I was friends with the, with the guys that were more sporty and I was friends sure. with the kids that were the tearaways and going to jail. And I, I knew all of the different groups and got on, with the, got on very well with the girls. I, I knew all the groups, I was friends with everyone, but... I, I never really committed fully. I was always kind of slightly, I just do my own thing. Was there a version of yourself that growing up that was inauthentically you that you sort of cringe at thinking about? Um, no, I don't think so. I think there's, there's a, uh, I think you become aware as you grow that you are a story you tell yourself. And people talk about going traveling as an incredible experience. And really where you go isn't important. It's wherever you go, there you are. And if yeah. you've ever gone traveling on your own or spent time on your own kind of, you know, anywhere, you bump into a stranger and it's, it's like, who are you going to be? What kind of per yeah. what, what, what story do you find yourself telling them to, to sum yourself up? And it's, it's interesting that the way that you process the world is so much more important than what happens to you. 95% yeah. of it's how you process what happens, the story that you tell. Right. You, can, you can wear it like, a, oh, there's something terrible happened to me. I suppose the most obvious example and the really tough love thing I say in the book, which is maybe a bit too tough because, you know, I think people have had it much harder than me, but at what age do you stop blaming your parents? Yeah. Because, uh, you know, 15-year-old saying, listen, I might be angry, but, you know, my father beat me. That seems pretty acceptable. A 40-year-old man saying that? Hmm, that, that, seems, that seems like you need to get over that. Where do you draw the line? Yeah. Well, the answer is somewhere. At some stage, there's a statute <laughs> yeah. of limitations on blaming stuff on the past. And you, you kind of go, well, you need to reinvent yourself. You need to stop telling that story. Start telling a different story. One of the things that you say in, in that vein is you talk about nature versus nurture. And you, it's one of the smartest things I've read re in, in a long time, which is you go, nurture's still going. <laughs> yeah, oh, yeah. The, the idea you know, that, well, I think you we can have affect that. nurture. You can still affect nurture today. Well, I, I slightly, I come down on the side of nature, nurture. What's more important? Nature is probably more important, but there's no control <laughs> in nature. Nature yeah, just. Yeah, you got no control. Those are the cards. You got dealt those cards. But how you yeah. play it is everything. And that's the only place where we have control. And then 
And you look at all these studies of identical twins and one did this and one did that. And, you know, yeah. um, you know, there's lots of famous examples where you go, wow, you, you know, you guys did great. And the third one, not so much. The, the Nolan brothers is my favorite, you know, story. It's like the Christopher Nolan did, does these incredible movies. His brother does um, Westworld, these incredible TV. Third brother in prison for murder. You go, oh, okay. Oh my gosh. Oh, right. That's a, that's a real, t- like, wow. and that's the same upbringing, the same house, the same everything. That's the nurture doesn't need to stop. It doesn't stop when you're 18. It's like the the fact, like talking to you, having you as a friend, that's nurture. That's part partly, yeah. you know, you go, oh yeah, you and Neil Brennan are good at giving notes on shows. Yeah, it's not entirely selfless. You know, we come to your show and we watch it and we learn something and we grow as performers and we go, oh, actually, Mike's our friend that's more of a storyteller and he he's long for, but then he can play the comedy seller and do 15 minutes of one-liners with a piece that's within the show. And you go, yeah. oh, okay, well, I need to maybe think about expanding what I'm doing or maybe talk about something in a different yeah. way. So you, you end up kind of going, your nurture becomes expanded by the people you hang out with. You're, you can't beat your environment. And your environment, it, it, like people think of that as a, it's well, where you, I'm in New York City. And you know, your environment's the people you're with. The yeah. people you're with and, and, and how you, who you're rolling with, who you're with, who do you, who, who's important in your life. That's your environment's your partner. That reminds me of the fact that I stole something from you that I believe you stole, told me you stole from Rodney Dangerfield, which is when you're working on new jokes, you bring the cards on stage and you basically read the joke and see if it gets a laugh. And I, if it does... I, I have them right here. This yeah. is for this evening. Yeah. Yeah. yeah don't memorize it until, you, until it's funny. <laughs> And and you say that in the book, and it reminded me, I completely stole that from you. I hope that's okay, but I think it's okay because you told me once that that's what Rodney Dangerfield used to do, is he would show up at a club, and he would read the joke off a card or whatever, and then if it got a laugh, he he memorized it and did it the next night. I'm always amazed that I don't think anyone's particularly impressed by the memory feat of stand-up comedy, like remembering 300 jokes <laughs> in a row. No one in the audience is thinking, this guy, I don't find him funny, but his memory is terrific. So I have material I'm working on. This is the part of the show where we work on new material. And sure. and if you have ideas, you can kick it around. If you have jokes you are new, you want of to course, throw out? Of course, but you know what? Let's do, who, who's got the greater need here? Mike, I think you need my help. <laughs> Tell me what you're thinking about. I will fix it for you. All the, right. The joke doctor will see you now, please. <laughs> <laughs> The, uh, what's the, what's the, what's the first bit? What are you going to talk about? So it's, well, it's funny cause it's about a lot. Well, a lot of the things you talk about in the book are about death and imagining, imagining if you were going to die in six months and, 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 and what would you do? What would you do if you had six months to live? That, that really stuck with me from the book. But one of the things is that one of the things recently in my life and that I deal with in my new show I'm developing, which is called the old man and the pool is um, how my brother Joe suggested that my wife Jen and I write a will. And so we invited this lawyer who writes wills to come over uh, to the house. And uh, uh, we'll call him Will. And and your will is sort of like your actual wedding vows to have and to hold the money when you die and sickness and health. But if the sickness gets real bad, I'm going to need your PIN number. And and uh, and and wills are a little bit like bills, but it's like a bill you write for your own body. And I I'm not good at paying bills, and so I'm definitely not good at writing wills. Uh, so that's sort of like the first chunk of it. Okay, that's it's a very interesting premise of going the 
Because I think the will is very much where the rubber hits the road in terms of yes. the relationship. You know, you've got lots of friends and, yes. and they go on the first draft, right? You go, yeah, what am I, what am I leaving my friends? Some happy memories. Good luck, everyone. <laughs> it's like, like it's, it, it, you redefine who your family is. <laughs> yes. You redefine who your family is. A friend of mine had this great line. He said, he said, when you close the door at night and lock the front door, who's inside the house? That's your family. Oh, that's interesting. Everyone that lives outside, those are people you used to know. Like even like his yeah. parents or whatever. You go, yeah, I'm not leaving them anything. <laughs> it's like I'm taking care of these people. That's it. <laughs> okay, so um, so one of the things that he says, and and this is true. He goes, uh, he goes. Uh, what happens if if Mike gets hit by a bus? And I said, uh, you know, Jen gets the money. And he goes, what happens? If you both get hit by the same bus, I go, our daughter Una gets the money. He says, who's in charge of Una? And, and I said, the bus driver? And then we were silent for about 40 minutes. Yeah, and, uh, that's, that's a nice, uh, uh, like, uh, the bus driver? Is it, is it you, <laughs> Will? <laughs> is it you? Sure. Is it you? <laughs> is it you? Um, I mean, the, the the terrible thing about the you know the idea of you know yourself and your partner dying and leaving your child an orphan is you don't have an evil aunt. <laughs> yeah, like like there should be some kind of roll dial number you could call. It's an evil yeah. aunt that will put her to work. Great, but she yes. will somehow triumph. Um, I, I, I've, I've left my kid. If something happens to me and my partner, um, my kid is, uh, is signed over to Elon Musk. <laughs> because you know, leave your kid to a billionaire but that you've never met. Just leave it to a billionaire. Just go, well, you know, I wanted it to be okay financially. <laughs> um, yeah, and so I, I thought you'd think this is interesting. I was reading this book at my parents' house called How We Die. It's written by a, a doctor many years ago. Wow, that was one of the and worst gifts you ever got them. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's great. Um, <laughs> hey, hey, Mom, anyway, Dad, he... I, I, I got you this. No reason. <laughs> you know, so it's COVID, great. you're 80, I guess. <laughs> You've crossed out how and um, when. It's, a, it's written by a doctor uh, many years ago. And he's talking about how he dealt with people, uh, patients who were dying. Wow. And how little confidence would you have if you walked into that doctor's office and there's a signed, you know, there's a framed <laughs> copy of that book on the wall. And you, uh, this motherfucker doesn't seem to care. How, it's like, this guy's given up. It feels like that's, like, I would not want him as my family doctor. You walk in, he goes, listen, I've written a book about this. Everyone dies, please. <laughs> I know it's German measles, but nah, you know, the kid might not make it. So, um, okay, so he tells this story. This really shocked me, this story. He tells this story about how in the 50s, he has a patient who goes into cardiac arrest and the rest of the staff is dealing with another emergency and the man on the table gasps at what they with what they call the death rattle you mentioned in, in your book, the guttural sound of someone who's most likely it's their last breath. And of course, this was a different era for treating heart attacks. So this so this young doctor 
takes a scalpel, cuts an incision in the man's chest, takes the heart in his hand and massages it, which is something doctors used to do as a last resort, and it didn't work. The patient's dead. The guy's holding this bloody heart next to a newly dead human being. There are so many situations in life that call for the phrase, this isn't what it looks like. But I feel like this is the most appropriate one. Anyway, that's why I didn't become a doctor. Yeah, I like the the line. It, this isn't what it, what, what it looks like. I feel like that would be a thing as well with your shows where a line like that would become a runner, would become something that it comes is, up again. It does, yeah, feel like a run, yeah. it does feel like it could be, it does feel like it could be a runner. Yeah, this isn't what it looks like is, is kind of a great line for, for lots of things as well, for like, you know, I mean... Your kid's going to walk in on you with a with a sleeping bag done up to there at some stage. <laughs> this yes. isn't what it looks like. <laughs> Working It Out is brought to you in part by Magic Spoon. I love cereal. I'm a big cereal for every meal person. <laughs> and I can't really... I can't really do that as a grown-up. That's a big thing you can do as a kid. Can't really do it as an adult because uh, it has a lot of sugar in it. Guess what? Magic Spoon has zero grams of sugar. It's got 13 or 14 grams of protein and only four net grams of carbs in each serving. Only 140 calories a serving. Keto-friendly, gluten-friendly, free-friendly. <laughs> it's all. It's so friendly, it's so free. Keto-friendly, gluten-free, grain-free, soy-free, low-carb. Yeah, I got that. I got that. Build your own custom box. That's what I do. You can choose from cocoa, fruity, frosted, peanut butter, blueberry, cinnamon, cookies, and cream. Maybe it's just me. I like frosted. Go to magicspoon.com slash to get your own custom bundle. Try it today and be sure to use our promo code Burbigs at checkout to save $5 on your order. Working It Out is sponsored in part by Helix Mattresses. Helix Mattresses has been with the podcast from Jump. They've, they've sent us some mattresses. We all love them. Uh, they show up. Let me talk you through the the Helix mattress situation. They show up in a box. The box is not the size of a mattress. It's the size of a box that would fit something much smaller than a mattress. And then you open it up, and it expands into a full-size mattress. And it's extremely comfortable, and it's basically the magic trick of mattresses. Go to helixsleep.com slash burbigs. You take their two-minute sleep quiz, and they match you with a customized mattress that'll give you the best sleep of your life. Right now, Helix is offering up to $200 off all mattress orders and two free pillows for our Working It Out listeners at helixsleep.com slash burbigs. And now back to the show. You know, it's funny. It's we We're talking about death and sort of dark humor. And this is just something I wrote down. One of the first jokes I ever wrote was um, about death. I, I, and I, and um, when I was 22, my friend's mother passed away. And, and I went to the funeral. And when I was taking the train back to New York, I wrote in my notebook, they handed out Kleenex at the beginning of the funeral, which I thought was cocky, as if to say, you're going to cry and cry. She's so dead. But that's that's how I process death, uh, 
jokes because otherwise I think I might forget why I want to live. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. I mean, there's a, there's a theory about uh, society that all society is is the obfuscation of decay. It's, yeah. the, it's the obscuring of decay. The idea that we don't really, in our culture, we don't really see death. We don't really get exposed to it. You're rarely in the room with the person when they die. You're rarely kind of, yeah. like we hide it away in these special places. Whereas it used to be part of everyday life. And it gave you more of a sense of kind of urgency, I think. Like yeah. it's, we all slightly think we're immortal. There's a bit of us that's like, when you're talking about the will, when you're talking about sitting with a guy, be nice to address that idea that everyone slightly thinks... Yeah, but not me though. No, I mean, <laughs> right. I mean, I think that's smart. Like this is, you know, Damien Hurst has that wonderful piece, which is a shark in formaldehyde, and it's called "The Impossibility of Dying in the Eyes of the Living." Yeah, like, like there's another, there's another thing that was called "I Can't Imagine a World Without Me," yeah. and I think a lot of people had that because. You know, you go, you know, that, that line of like people think you're the center of the universe. And you go, yeah, from where I'm calling from, I saw that. <laughs> yes, that's very smart. I, you, you have a great line in your book where you say, if you think that people are living in your world, you might end up being very unhappy. If you think you're living in everyone else's world, that's a better path. Yeah, I mean, I don't like the odds if you think people are living in your world. And we, we've all met people like that that are just angry because it's seven billion to one. Yeah. And they're just, they're trying to mold the world to them rather than acceptance seems to be the first step for, for everything. You just, you see how things are right now. You accept how things are. They don't always have to be that way. Everything's changing. But you have to accept how things are now to get anywhere. It's like that famous old joke about the, you know, how, how do you get to, whatever, how do you get to Boston? I wouldn't start from here. <laughs> That's a great joke. <laughs> I wouldn't start from here. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, that's great. You have, first of all, you have an encyclopedic memory for just jokes. My God. I, I treat this like a job, Mike. I suggest you do similar. <laughs> All right, so this is the final thing I'll, I'll run by you. But I think, first of all, that's a great point you're making about the will. There's an existential question about the will, which is it makes you think, oh, my gosh, what happens if I'm not on this planet, if like, I'm well, not in this existence? You know, I think it's, like, it's that thing of, like, as a comedian, as a guy, you're thinking, this is like a fun parlor game, but I'm not actually going to die because, right, you know, because, <laughs> you know, because I'm the star. I'm the star of this story. Yeah, yeah. You think you're the, you're the you're a guy giving a will called Will. We didn't even bother yeah. with a name for you. That's right. No, it's interesting. Yeah, so, okay, so this is another part of the will. We'll end on this. This is another part of the will. Literally, the section is called Pets. I looked this up with people, people giving uh, their inheritance to their animals, um, I read about a four-year-old stray in Italy who inherited $13 million from its owner. The article said the cat's newfound riches include cash as well as properties in Rome, Milan, and Calabria. It, it says that initially the woman instructed her attorneys to, quote, identify an animal welfare association to leave her cat, Tommaso, but then unable to find a satisfactory association, left her money to the cat via... Her nurse, Stefania, first of all, 
this Stefania character is very suspicious. Yeah. Second of all, I wanted to call this poor woman before she died and say, hey, I'm great with cats. Of course. I mean, <laughs> it reminds me, I, had, I wrote a bit recently about d- dementia. Such a, it's such a cruel disease, dementia. My grandmother doesn't even remember um, changing her will and signing everything over to me. <laughs> Sad, isn't it? <laughs> oh, that's so funny. I think that's really, like, leaving everything to your pet. Here's what I would say would be an interesting thing for me. What is the most inappropriate organization that you could leave yeah. your money to? Like, the, the idea, like, if you, because your will is read in public. There's a public yeah. reading of your will. And yours yeah. will be reported on. You know, you're, you're, you're kind of a celebrity, right? So it'll be somewhere. Someone will report on your will. Mike Babiglia survived by, he left his will. Sure. He left, uh, what's the worst charity you could leave it to? <laughs> right. The Association for Japanese Whalers. Oh my okay. God. Well, I guess, I guess he had an interest in hunting and killing whales. Yes. The fraternity of, uh, of rare game hunters. I think that'd be a fun thing to think about, like what your, it's, it's what your, your legacy. So to thought, think about your legacy and what you leave behind when you go is interesting. I was, I, I, you know, that thing about death, I was thinking about it recently because my, my friend died and uh, I, I was thinking about that thing of you die twice. You die when you yeah. die and you die the last time someone says your name. Yeah. And it's, it's, kind of, it's, it's mirrored in, it's in Carousel actually. The, the musical, the idea that yeah. you, you die, you, dis, you go on the last time someone says your name. So your heritage, what you're leaving, your legacy is, is your work. Yeah. And, uh, and then what, what else you leave is kind of, it, it sort of doesn't matter. I love this conversation. One of the things that my takeaway, I feel like for the listeners in terms of, one of the things about this podcast, working it out, is that it's a fly on the wall to a conversation between comedians figuring out what a piece of writing is gonna be before it's formed, before it's done. And I, one of the things I love about your process and, what, and whenever you come to my shows or I come to your shows and, and, and is, is that we ask a lot of questions. Like you asking me that question is spurring my brain a lot and going like, oh yeah, that's, that's, a, that's a question I should ask myself. That's a question I should ask myself. And a lot of times the answers are the jokes. Yeah, and you know, but, but I think dealing with acceptance of the reality as a standing point for the jokes, because actually if you die and your partner dies and Una's left an orphan, what she doesn't need is money. What she needs is love. And you can't leave that love behind. And you go, it's, you know, that kind of, there's a heartbreak to that. There's a melancholy to that of going, I won't be there to give her what she needs. It's a poor substitute because, uh, you know, what does the, the, the money represent? You know, if you could wish for anything for your child, what would it be? I talk about this in the book, you know, you go, for me, it would be likability. It's the one thing, yeah. if you could give a child a gift, it makes life easier. So the final segment of the show is called Working It Out for a Cause. And if there's an organization that you like to contribute to, I will contribute to them and then I'll link them in the show notes and encourage others to. Uh, Yes, it's St. Mary's Center Community Trust, smcyouthwork.org. 
it's kind of the kids that cause a lot of the crime and are the victims of a lot of the crime, local gangs, and there's a huge knife crime problem in London. And these guys do just tremendous work, working with the kids, working out disputes. So they have like a 24-hour a day, every day of the year hotline, and the guys know that they can call, they can trust them, they can talk to them, and they prevent murders. They prevent people from getting seriously hurt. Um, That's incredible. So yeah, that's, that's a, really it's a great local charity. So I'm going to contribute to them, and and I'm going to link them in the show notes. And um, and Jimmy, this has been wildly helpful, and I'm so glad I was able to read your book. I you know it's a thank phenomenal you so much. book. It's, Congratulations! Uh, well, thank you very much. I, I really I very much enjoyed reading it, and uh, I, I enjoyed writing it. Actually, I did kind of enjoy reading. It. I had to read it again to do the audio book, and there's the strangest <laughs> experience where you're you're kind of go, you're rereading your own work and going, I agree with all of this. <laughs> Such a good point. Working it out, cause it's not done. Working it out, cause there's no one. That's going to do it for another episode of Working Out with Jimmy Carr. Jimmy Carr is at, at Jimmy Carr on Instagram, at Jimmy Carr on Twitter. Uh, definitely pick up his book. I, I love his book. It's, it's one of my favorite books I've ever read on the subject of comedy, and I'm obsessed with books in that genre. Um, our producers of Working It Out are myself, along with Peter Salomon and Joseph Berbiglia, consulting producer Seth Barish, sound mix by Kate Belinsky with help from Joel Robbie, sound recordist Parker Lyons, associate producer Mabel Lewis, special thanks to my consigliere Mike Berkowitz, as well as Marissa Hurwitz and Josh Upfall. As always, a special thanks to Jack Antonoff and Bleachers for their music, and to my wife, the poet J-Hope Stein, our book, The New One, which might make a perfect holiday gift, is in your local bookstore. As always, a special thanks to my daughter, Una, who created a radio fort. And thanks most of all to you who have listened, who are writing these nice reviews on Apple Podcasts and giving us a few stars. Tell your friends, tell your enemies. We're working it out. We'll see you next time, everybody. 